Good evening. My task tonight is to speak to you from chapter 26, paragraph 8, and there are a great many important things that I could talk to you about um, concerning the matters from paragraph 8. If, um, if I don't mention your favorite most important thing from paragraph 8, that doesn't mean that I think it's unimportant. It just means that I think that I, I've only been given one session to speak to you from paragraph 8. So, um, tonight, uh, I would like to offer you six points of observation on some of the main things that we confess in paragraph 8. And as we work along those points, I would like to sprinkle in some applications that I hope will be of encouragement uh, to you, especially to you brothers who labor as uh, pastors or deacons. Well, let's jump into it here in paragraph 8. Uh, point number one, we confess the sovereign and supreme governing of Christ at the level of a particular congregation. We confess the sovereign and supreme governing of Christ at the level of a particular congregation. Let's notice those first three words, a particular church. There's a foundation that holds up these three words, and it's a foundation, by the time we, that we've uh, arrived at this point in the confession, we've already confessed what this foundation is that holds up these three words, so let's not move too quickly past those first three, a particular church. The first three words of this paragraph obviously indicate that this paragraph is going to be a summary of some things regarding the particular church as distinguished from the universal church. Uh, that there are particular churches, plural, related to, but distinguished from the one universal church is a point that has already been established in paragraphs 2 through 7. This paragraph begins by indicating that at this point, we're going to be limiting our thinking to the local congregation. Now, Benjamin Keach says that every house has a matter or a substance from which it is built and that every house has a form or an ordering or an organizing of those materials. Do we affirm a matter and a form with regards to the universal church? Yes, we do. That's paragraph one. Do we affirm a matter and a form with regards to the particular church? Yes, we do. Do we affirm that a particular church has materials and organization? Yes. So our confession is very careful and clear to distinguish or in distinguishing the matter and the form of the one universal church from the matter and form of the many particular churches. In paragraphs 2 and 5, we confess the matter or the materials of a local congregation, and that matter or the material is visible saints. In paragraph 8, which is what, where we're going to be tonight, we affirm some things about the form of a particular church or the local congregation. We must know the mind of Christ with regards to the particular church, and we must 
acknowledge or confirm that knowledge by our obedience to the commands Christ has given regarding both the matter and the form of particular churches. It's Christ himself who draws the smaller circle of a particular church as compared to the larger circle of the universal church. And it's Christ who prescribes the matter and the form of that smaller particular circle. So, may the Lord grant us wisdom and courage to help that occasional attender who shows up, who wants all of the benefits or claims all of the benefits of Christ's universal church, but wants nothing of the humble acknowledgement or accountability of the particular church. It is Christ himself who draws this smaller circle with regards to both matter and form. So, we confess a matter and a form with regards to particular churches. But to do so, we must um, bring with us the truths of Christ's power that have already been confessed in this chapter. All right? So whatever, whatever we're going to confess, as summarized in this particular paragraph regarding a particular church, we must do so upon the essential foundation that's already been established for us in this chapter. And this foundation is the foundation of Christ's governing, or it's the foundation of Christ's power. Everything else that we're going to say in paragraph 8 needs to rest upon this foundation. All right? We begin our confession at paragraph by saying, or by using these words, a particular church, and we do so with remembrance of what has already been established regarding power or authority or governing. Failure to confess truths of church form with remembrance of what has already been confessed will be an abysmal failure to remember Christ's authority and will end up being an abysmal failure to remember our submission to him. And a failure to submit to his power we think about anything else that's confessed in paragraph 8 will inevitably lead to an abuse of any delegated power, and it will inevitably lead to the abuse of one another. So, we don't want to run too fast past those first three words, a particular church. To confess anything truthfully about a particular church, its building materials or its order it requires us to confess it all upon the foundation of Christ's supreme and sovereign power. So from paragraph 4, the Lord Jesus is the head of the church, in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. And from paragraph 5, this Lord Jesus with supreme and sovereign power calls out of the world by his word and spirit particular people and commands them to walk. That is, he commands them to live out their profession of faith. That means, or that is to say, he commands them to follow him. That is, he commands them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. How? The word is together. That's how Christ commands us to walk. Together, and how together? In particular societies or churches, plural there's one universal church, singular. The use of plural churches refers not to the one universal, but to the multiple and particular congregations where public worship takes place. And from paragraph 7, 
what we're doing here is we're, we're bringing this foundation with us to prepare us to go into, to, we have to carry this with us when we come to paragraph 8. It's this foundation of the authority of Christ, of the power of Christ, of the governing of Christ. Okay? So from paragraph 7 to each of these churches, plural, that is to each of these particular societies or churches or congregations, Christ has given what? He has given power and authority. What kind of power and authority? Well, that which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. Okay? Christ is the Lord of a particular church. Does Christ with supreme and sovereign power declare the matter of His churches? Yes. It's saints, visible saints, professing the faith and the obedience and not destroying their profession of faith by heresy or ungodliness. Does Christ also with supreme and sovereign power declare the organizing of those saints and the ordering of their walking together in worship and discipline? Yes. Therefore, we begin paragraph 8 with this affirmation when we, when we see those words, a particular congregation. We begin it with this affirmation, and we carry this affirmation with us throughout paragraph 8, this affirmation that Christ is the supreme and sovereign Lord of a particular church. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means it's the beginning and ongoing controlling principle of wisdom. Christ is the only supreme and sovereign Lord of the church. That is the beginning and the ongoing controlling principle for paragraph 8. So that's point number one. Christ is the supreme and sovereign Lord of the particular church, which leads us very naturally to number two. Point number two, we therefore also confess that the gathering... And organizing of a particular church must be according to the mind of Christ. Christ is the head of the church, where the particular members of that particular congregation are united together to Christ, who through His Word and Spirit feeds and nourishes and grows those members. We just read from Ephesians 4. Here is a portion of that. He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints... He gave them also for the fulfillment of the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, and we note that there are differences in those offices, that they are united with the purpose of doing what? Proclaiming the mind of Christ. Unto what purpose or unto, unto what end? Till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love." If that particular Ephesian congregation was going to be gathered and organized with unity of the faith and with knowledge of the Son of God and that ordering leading to a maturity and a completeness as measured according to the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
And if that particular church was going to be protected from every wind of doctrine and trickery, which, by the way, can negatively impact both matter and form, and if that particular church was going to walk together as a society where the truth was spoken in love, leading to a true and growing sanctification, it would all, all of it would be only by their connection to the one and only supreme and sovereign head of the body. It is from Christ that we know the proper ordering and the proper supplying of the different joints and the different parts. So with, without the head, it's, it's not just that the body is broken, it's that without the head, the body is dead. But with the head, and only with the supreme and sovereign head, according to His Word, is the body properly organized with each part properly doing its share into growth and edification. All right, we're confessing that this gathering and the organizing of a particular church, it, because he's the supreme and sovereign Lord, it must be according to his mind. So not just any gathering is a church. Just because a group of people get together on a Sunday morning does not mean that they're a lampstand. It must be according to the mind of Christ. And Christ has not left us not knowing his mind with regards to the gathering and organizing of a particular church because through his apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, his mind for the building and the growing of particular churches has been revealed. When we speak of anything regarding a particular church, we must always set this overall tone and speak and believe in ways that humbly acknowledge that we are speaking of Christ's kingdom, of his rule and of his reign, of his power, of his authority. There is but one Lord and Savior of the body. There is but one supreme and sovereign mind to be known and to be governed by in our ordering of the church. When Benjamin Keach defines a true church, he ties his definition to this foundation that the Father has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church, and it's not with some power, it's not with limited power, but it is with all power for the calling, institution, order, and government of the church. Listen for this foundation in Keech's definition of a church. He says this, a church of Christ is a congregation of godly Christians who, as a stated assembly, being first baptized upon the profession of faith, do by mutual agreement and consent give themselves up to the Lord and to one another according to the will of God, and do ordinarily meet together in one place for the public service and worship of God, among whom the word of God and sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institution. Well, is it God's will or is it Christ's institution? The answer is yes. When we speak of according to the mind of Christ, this is, this is how we define what a true church is. So this work of gathering and organizing, governing, this laboring in terms of matter and form, materials, and organizing in a particular church, it is a work of submission to Christ. But if our work in organizing a particular church is going to be according to the mind of Christ, then let us also proceed with confidence. We have many reasons, dear brothers, for confidence in this work. Christ has declared his mind on these matters. 
and his mind is revealed in his word. So let us proceed with confidence. The word we have from the one Lord of the church with regards to the organizing of a particular church is a word that's sufficient, certain, and infallible. Our Lord will not and he cannot mislead us. Dear brothers, let's proceed with confidence as we confess the form of a particular church. Let us proceed with confidence because he's not only given us his word, but the one who's given us his word is the one who loves us. He gave his own life for us. He gave his own life for us. Has he also not given us whatever word we need or whatever power or authority we need for the proper ordering of worship and discipline? Dear brothers, the carrying on of a proper ordering of worship and discipline is very hard work. It is often attended with many trials and tribulations. But we confess that we have the mind of Christ in the word of Christ, and, that, and with that, we have his love for his bride. So brothers, confidence in your laboring in your particular church. But let us also labor with great carefulness and let us labor with great caution. He is the Lord of the church, not us. He knows what is right for the gathering and the organizing and the care for his bride. If we step off of or away from this foundation of the supreme and sovereign governing of Christ as revealed in his sufficient, certain, and infallible word, it's not that we might it's that we will disobey him. It's that we will dishonor him. And all of the other matters that are going to be described in paragraph 8. So, dear brothers, let us always be pursuing and growing in knowledge of his revealed mind with wisdom and with submission and with confidence. Let us be praying for the Lord's grace to do this. We... Um, Rightly so, we, we speak often of the second commandment when we, when we think of the ordering of the worship of our church, but dear brothers, let us not forget the first commandment. We are to have no other gods before the one true and only God. The Lord of the church is not one among equals. Therefore, may our submission to his mind in the church, may our submission to his mind in the church reflect our obedience to the first commandment. The supreme and sovereign Lord of the church is not a lesser among greater. May our exercise of the delegated and limited power he has granted to his churches, paragraph 7, or to his officers, paragraph 8, may it reflect our obedience to the first commandment. He is not a lesser among greater. So we confess that this proper organizing of a particular church, it must be according to his mind. Number three, we confess that a particular congregation gathered and organized in obedience to Christ has officers and members. We distinguish a subset of people within the membership of a particular church, and they are called officers. We identify this subset as being the officers called bishops or elders and deacons. The Lord of the church has revealed his mind on this matter. Not every member is an officer, but every officer is a member, and there are two offices. Elders 
also called bishops or overseers, also called pastors or shepherds, that's paragraph 11, and deacons. From Paul to Titus, what was lacking in the churches in Crete was not members in the churches, but the specific appointment of elders within those churches. They were still true churches, but they were churches in a condition of lack. Those true churches in Crete needed the further ordering of the appointment of a subset of those members of those churches to the office of the eldership. In 1 Timothy 5.17, there's a subset of church members who rule well. It wasn't the entire congregation to be counted worthy of double honor, but only the subset of members laboring in the word and doctrine. All right? We confess that a particular congregation gathered and organized in obedience to Christ has officers and members. We're confessing a subset of members who are called officers. Is anyone among you sick? Asks James. Call not for every single member, but call for the elders, James 5.14. And Peter, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, he gave gave, uh, special instructions to the elders who were among them. And Peter did not say that every member was to shepherd the flock as overseers, but that only the elders held that office or had the responsibility to fulfill that work. Peter distinguished some members who were among them as having an office or a work that not all of the members had. This is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul uh, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Paul did not call a meeting with all of the members of the church, but only with this subset of the Ephesian church membership that he identifies as the elders. And Paul would say at that meeting that they were to take heed to themselves and to the flock. These elders that Paul had a meeting with were a part of the flock and at the same time distinguished among the flock. Paul goes on, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So all all of the church was the flock. But some who were among the flock had been appointed for the work of oversight and shepherding. We confess that a particular church has officers and members. Paul continues in that meeting. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now that warning certainly uh, should have been heeded by the entire church, but it focused on those elders slash overseers slash shepherds. And Acts chapter 6 describes a great multiplying of who? A great multiplying of disciples, which led to complications in food distribution for some of the widows. The apostles directed who? They directed the disciples, which when you arrive at that point in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is already labeled disciples as those who gladly received the apostles' word, who had been baptized, and upon that profession of faith had been added to the number of membership and were thus allowed to the Lord's Supper. It's to those disciples, the apostles said that they were to seek out from where? From among themselves, from among the other disciples. They weren't supposed to seek out everybody 
from among the disciples, but only seven who met the qualifications. So we have a subset of seven disciples, seven church members whom the apostles would appoint as those servants of benevolence. A church has officers and members. Was it a true church before they, before they had those servants of benevolence? Yes. It's still a true church if it doesn't have a single deacon, but it would be a more fully functioning church if it had one or more. Is it still a true church if it's looking for that elder, pastor, overseer? Yes, it's a true church, but it would be a more fully functioning and more completely ordered church if it had one or more. All right. We confess that a particular congregation has officers and members, but not every member is an officer, while every officer is a member. So think about this. In this, we are affirming a unity and a diversity within a particular church. A unity and a diversity within a particular church. The entire membership of a particular church is unified in its sainthood. All of the true disciples in a church are unified in that calling of Christ, having been called out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit. All of the members have the calling of Christ to walk before him in all of the ways of obedience. All of those whom Christ has called out of the world to himself are to demonstrate that calling with their profession of faith and with their obedience including the demonstration of walking together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship. There's a unity. The Bible does not recognize the validity of an independent disciple who walks around all by himself with no mutual edification and no mutual accountability. There's no recognition of that. But we also affirm within a particular, particular congregation, we affirm a diversity. For there are and there will be, by the supreme and sovereign appointment of Christ, the appointment of elders and deacons from among those disciples. But this truth of Christ's appointment uh, of officers now leads us to point number four. We confess that Christ appoints the officers and particular congregation chooses and sets them apart. We confess that the appointment is a supreme and sovereign appointment by Christ, but that a particular church has the responsibility to discern and approve whom Christ has appointed. Well, again, we can say that not just any gathering is a church. The matter and the form must be according to the mind of Christ, and Christ has not left us not knowing his mind with regards to the gathering and organizing of a particular church. We confess that Christ appoints the pastors and deacons, and that sovereign appointment is to be discerned by the church and agreed to by the church in its choosing and setting apart of those members from the other members. They are chosen and set apart by the church, set apart into the calling of the pastor, or unto the calling of the deacon, but not apart from the calling of a disciple. Under this point, we must continue to lay everything upon the proper foundations. Christ alone is the Lord of the church, ruling it by His Word and Spirit with sovereign and supreme power. So, yes, the church does the choosing and setting apart, but this must be a work 
of submission to the Lord of the church. Yes, Christ has given to each particular church the power and authority that is needful for their carrying on with order in their worship and discipline. But the church properly exercises that power and authority only when it is submitted to the Lord's commands and rules. Yes, Christ has invested the church with that power and authority and responsibility to discern His appointments and to do the choosing and the setting apart. But that, but that authority and that responsibility, dear saints, must be conformed to His commands and rules. We've already confessed the power of Christ as sovereign and supreme. Therefore, if we are now to confess to any other power, we must speak of it with great humility, remembering that of necessity, the power of the church to select officers must be a delegated and limited power given by Christ, always governed by Christ, according to the mind of Christ, which Christ has revealed in His Word. Christ sovereignly appoints the officers, but He has also revealed His mind regarding who is qualified to be an elder or a deacon so that the church can recognize His appointed men. Therefore, let not any particular congregation do any choosing or setting apart in a way that treats the Lord of the church as a lesser among greater. The supreme power is His. The right mind on these matters is His. Does the church serve Christ and submit to Him as the only Lord of the church? Or is Christ replaced with others in what is viewed as the supreme word on officer selection? It's an act of idolatry among other sins for a church to appoint a disqualified man as elder or deacon. Likewise, it's an act of idolatry for a church to withhold the choosing and setting apart of a qualified man. It's Christ's mind that we are to be governed by on this. Therefore, brothers, be encouraged to proceed in two ways with the exercise of congregational authority in this choosing and setting apart of your elders and deacons. First, proceed with humble reverence. This is a work of the church that rests upon the foundation of the wisdom the one who is the Lord of the church. Let us proceed with humble reverence. Beware of that temptation to be moved off of that foundation and to be moved and to be governed in these matters by expediency or by panic because you don't know if you're going to be taken care of. Let's be careful that we're staying on the right foundation and not be moved off into these very unstable and poor foundations. Convenience is a poor foundation for the setting apart of a man. The mind of Christ revealed in His sufficient, certain, and infallible Word is the only good foundation. Impatience on the part of any disciple in this process may be a fruit of, of an irreverent and unsubmissive root. Let's proceed with humble reverence. Let's proceed with patience. Let's proceed with diligent submission to His Word of qualification. 
But secondly, because Christ has revealed his mind on officer selection, brothers, let's proceed with confidence. The Lord of the church loves his bride. Submission to his qualifications will not lead to the harm of the church. Yes, sometimes it results in not selecting a man. Yes, sometimes it results in a needy church having to wait patiently for the mind of Christ and for his qualifications to be satisfied. Proceed in your time of need with confidence and with your trust in the Lord. Wait upon the Lord in your exercise of authority to choose and to set apart. Resist the temptation to dishonor him with any panic or with any hastiness in these particular matters. The Lord loves his people. The Lord loves his, pe- his people. And he will provide according to, the perfect, to his perfect love and perfect wisdom. And he's given you a sufficient word to navigate meeting the church's need for elders and deacons. Number five, we confess that Christ entrusts the officers with power and duty. There is a power and an authority entrusted to the congregation, but here we are now confessing that there is also a power and a duty entrusted only to the officers. Notice that our confession states that Christ entrusts them with a power and duty, and that word them refers to who? Let's be careful. It refers to the officers. It does not refer to just the bishops or elders, but it refers also to deacons. The them is the officers that Christ has entrusted power and duty to. Those seven men in Acts chapter 6 had authority. It was a very real authority to make material and benevolence decisions. Yes, that very real authority was under the oversight of the apostles, but nevertheless, they had a very real power and duty appointed to them by Christ. A wise and obedient eldership will recognize this proper diaconal authority and will oversee it and encourage it according to the mind of Christ, right? The qualification for uh, an elder in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, it includes ruling his own house well, because being ruled well is a benefit that the church needs from its elders, according to the mind of the Lord of the church. An elder must be a qualified ruler if the church is to know that that man will take care of them. Notice that connection, those two words, ruling and care that Paul puts together. We're confessing that Christ entrusts the officers with a very real power and duty. That word rule there in uh, 1 Timothy is defined by the BDAG as to exercise a position of leadership. Acts 20, 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There, to oversee and to shepherd both carry the idea of one who has the work of an authoritative guardianship. There is power and duty that belongs to the elders or to the deacons, which does not belong to every disciple. Every elder 
or deacon is a disciple, but not every disciple is an elder or a deacon. And now we're making clear that this also means that not every disciple has the authority or the duties that belong to elders and deacons. It is a wise and obedient eldership who oversees the maintenance of this idea and the ordering of the church. And you men know as well as I do that the maintenance of this idea is going to sometimes result in some disciples being offended and will lead some disciples to reveal that they are resistant to submitting to their elders or deacons according to the mind of Christ. When a disciple resists and resents a pastoral or diaconal authority that is in submission to the word of Christ, and when that disciple defends his resistance and resentment with the very spiritual-sounding argument that he only listens to and obeys Christ, that disciple is, in fact, not listening to and is, in fact, not obeying Christ. Do you want, do you want, to, do you want to talk about listening and obeying to Christ? Okay, well, to listen to and to obey Christ is to listen to and obey Christ, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, where Christ says, Obey those who rule over you and be submiss- submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. When we affirm a power and authority held by some disciples as pastors, Over other disciples, we are affirming that it is the Lord himself who has the wisdom. It's the Lord himself who has the goodness to grant an authoritative, soul-watching power to some of his disciples for the profiting of the whole church. So, let us proceed with submission to the mind of Christ on this matter of authority in the eldership of the diaconate. The exercise of pastoral or diaconal authority apart from the mind of Christ, is idolatry and inevitably leads to the abuse of power and that inevitably leads to the abuse of disciples. How wise that particular church will be to heed the qualification of teachability, Titus 1.9, or to heed the warning of pride, 1 Timothy 3.6, before setting apart a man to be their pastor, because it is, according to the mind of Christ, an office with authority. How wise and obedient a particular church must be to heed the qualification of not greedy for money before setting apart a man to be their deacon, because it is, according to the mind of Christ, an office with authority over material provisions. So, we've We draw these lines of congregational and official authority. We need wisdom to draw these lines of authority very, very carefully. To put it practically, um, there will be some things that the congregation decides because there's a power and authority that Christ gives to the church. That's paragraph 7. But there must also be matters that will be decided without a congregational vote because there is a power and authority that Christ has given to his officers. That's paragraph 8. Now, earlier I made a point about the unity 
and the diversity of a particular congregation. There's a unity of Christ calling to sainthood. There's a diversity of Christ calling to the work of pastors or deacons. Now, I want you to consider at this point Under this point of Christ entrusting officers with special duties, I'd like to encourage you to think of the truth of unity and diversity within the office. And I want to focus on the office of the eldership. A particular congregation must acknowledge that there must be maintained a non-negotiable unity in its eldership. And here's what I mean by that. A particular congregation must maintain this, that their elders must be unified in that calling of Christ, having been called out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word and spirit. All of the elders have the calling of Christ to walk before him in all the ways of obedience. All of those elders or elder nominees whom Christ has called out of the world to himself are to demonstrate that calling with their profession of faith. They're to demonstrate it with their obedience, including their demonstration of their willingness and faithfulness to walk with the rest of those saints in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship. There's a non-negotiable unity that the elders or those who desire to be elders must demonstrate And that includes this, that they love and are committed to the local congregation. That ought to mark all disciples. The eldership ought to be unified in that. There's a unity in the eldership, I mean, by that. And a particular congregation must also acknowledge that there must be maintained this non-negotiable unity among its elders in their qualification for that particular office. All right? And we affirm that there's a unity in their duty and that the eldership is unified in the duty of ministering the word. That, that would be in a later paragraph. Now, at the same time, at the same time, a wise congregation and a wise eldership will recognize and encourage a diversity of gifts and a diversity of strengths within that one eldership. Yes, we confess one office of pastor, elder, overseer. We confess one office. By that, we do not confess one gift. By that, we do not confess one strength. There is, um, there are things that that eldership ought to be unified in, non-negotiable things. But we also confess that there is a diversity. There's a diversity of gifts, a a diversity of strengths within that one eldership. John Newton describes this unity and diversity. Listen to how he describes both things present. He says, the faithful ministers of the gospel are all the servants and ambassadors of Christ. Unity, right? They are called and furnished by His Holy Spirit. They speak in His name, and their success in the discharge of their office, be it more or less, depends entirely upon his blessing, so far they are on par. That's what, that's what is the same with all of them. Newton continues, but in the measure 
of their ministerial abilities and in the peculiar turn of their preaching, there is a great variety. Now, brothers, if you'll listen carefully, this will be of great encouragement to you. We're not all the same. If we, if we, even if we occupy the same office, and even if there are things that, are, ought to, that ought to be the same among us, that doesn't mean that we're the same in all of our strengths and in all of our abilities and in all of our gifts. This will be an encouragement to you. Newton says there's a greater variety. Here's what he says. There are diversity of gifts from the same Spirit, and he distributes to every man severally according to his own will. Newton says, some, speaking of these ministers of, of the gospel, some are more happy in alarming the careless, others in administering consolation to the wounded conscience. Some are set more especially for the establishment and confirmation of the gospel doctrines. Others are more skillful in solving casuistical points, that is, they're more gifted with those subtle and sophisticated points of doctrine. Others are more excellent in enforcing practical godliness, and others, again, having been led through depths of temptation and spiritual distress, are best acquainted with the various workings of the heart and know best how to speak a word in season to weary and exercise souls. Perhaps, he says, no true minister of the gospel is wholly at a loss upon either of these points, but few, if any, are remarkably and equally excellent in managing them all. He continues, again, as to their manner, some are more popular and pathetic. And Monday morning, I, think, I always think of how pathetic that was, but that's not what Newton means. <laughs> as to their manner, some are more popular and pathetic. He means preachers who reach to those deep feelings of the soul but at the same time more popular and diffuse. While the want of that life and earnestness and delivery is compensated in others by the closeness, accuracy, and depth of their compositions, in this variety of gifts, he says, the Lord has a gracious regard to the different tastes and dispositions as well as the wants, that is, the needs of His people. By their combined effects, the complete system of His truth is illustrated and the good of his church promoted with the highest advantage. While his ministers, like officers assigned to different stations in an army, have not only the good of the whole in view, but each one his particular post to maintain. Brother, maintain your post. Now, some of us occupy the same post called the elder or the pastor. Your gifts may be different than my gifts, and your strengths may be different than my strengths. Use them for the glory of God. Don't worry about comparing yourself to me, and I ought not to worry about comparing myself because I can think of these brothers who are so much better than me in all these different ways. Well, the Lord has given me a post to maintain. I need to maintain it with confidence and with my trust in Him. Brothers, you do the same. We confess one office, but we're not confessing one strength or one gift in our fulfillment of the work of the ministry. That's from his uh, Collected Works, Volume 1, pages 218 and 219, if you're interested. That will be a very wise congregation that recognizes the diversity of gifts and strengths in the choosing of their elders and deacons. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear this. This wonderful variety of gifting and strengths when you look out among yourselves in this choosing and setting apart of your elders and deacons. There are non-negotiable things. There's a unity that must be maintained, but there's also a diversity within these offices. And that'll be a wise eldership who recognizes and encourages the use of those various gifts for themselves and for their deacons. Well, that leads us to our final point, number six. We confess the continuation of these things to the end of the world. We confess the continuation of these things to the end of the world. Those words to be continued certainly speak to our duty as churches and certainly to our duty as officers to be diligent. It certainly speaks to the need, our need to persevere in knowing and obeying the mind of Christ on these matters. It's a humble confession of our responsibility to remain steady. It's a humble confession of our responsibility to remain resolved in these truths. But our pursuit of perseverance and our pursuit of faithfulness and all the ways of obedience, it always rests upon our Lord's assurances of His preservation of us. So those words to be continued are ultimately a confession of the Lord's faithfulness to take care of our needs and to give us the kingdom, to be continued to the end of the world. Does your heart not soar when you hear those words? To be continued to the end of the world. So even here with these words about continuing, can you see that it's still the same foundation that we started with at the beginning? It's still the same foundation that we're resting upon. We're still resting upon the love and the power of the only supreme and sovereign Lord of the church when we confess to the end of the world. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. But our inheritance is guaranteed. Yes, we need His daily grace. Yes, we need strengthening for obedience and perseverance in the ordering of His churches. But our Savior has assured His saints of His strengthening and he's assured his saints of his preservation of us for his heavenly kingdom. To the end of the world, brothers. It's a call to your perseverance. It's a call to your diligence. It's a call to your faithfulness. But, but ultimately, it's a call or it's a reminder that the Lord has given us many, many assurances of his preservation of us. That'd be a good thing for me to remember, remember more often on a Monday morning when I'm doing the postmortem on what I preached you may be the same way to the end of the world. It's a very appropriate, it's such an appropriate thing to have at this point in our confession or to have in that particular paragraph to the end of the world, how appropriate it is to have in that particular paragraph. Paul told Timothy that the fulfillment of Timothy's ministry would have to be with watchfulness in all things. And that it would have to be by endurance through many afflictions. Therefore, how appropriate it was in that context for Paul to remind Timothy of that crown of righteousness that had been reserved from him, reserved for him. Dear brothers, to the end of the world, 
I think that's a good reminder of the Lord's uh, assurances of his preservation of his saints. We need to uh, engage in our labor in the ordering of a particular church with our confidence in him to the end of the world, to the end of the world. There's nothing, dear brothers, that's going to proceed out of the gates of hell that will overcome the work of Christ. So, brothers, to the end of the world, persevere. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've uh, given us tonight to give a brief consideration to some of these things. And Heavenly Father, I pray for uh, especially my brothers who are laboring as pastors and deacons, perhaps even at this very moment having to labor under a very heavy burden of, of trial and difficulty. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, pour out your Holy Spirit and grant to them the strength they need in their souls. Encourage them uh, by your word. Strengthen them with your promises and your assurances of your love. Lord, we are very thankful for the many promises that you've given us, for the many assurances of your love for your saints, of your love and faithfulness for your bride. And we who serve as officers in particular congregations, we, we beg of you uh, for your, that you would continue to sustain us and continue to strengthen us. Uh, we are but uh, weak men. We come before your throne pleading your help, pleading uh, uh, for the grace that we need to serve your people in ways that are uh, honoring and glorifying to you and helpful to them. And um, Lord, together we are thankful for your calling, calling us out of the world unto yourself in these matters of church order, we pray. Give us wisdom, give us carefulness, uh, grant to us a ready submission to your word. For Lord, you are the Lord of the church. In all these things, we, um, we thank you and we do pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.